Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, A Brief History of the Supreme Court, Part 5, Borking, Thomas, and Scotus at the Center of Society. The date is August 2022, and my name is Belisarius Avis. Quote, I don't think the Constitution is studied almost anywhere, including law schools. In law schools, what they study is what the court said about the Constitution. They study the opinions. They don't study the Constitution itself, unquote. And, quote, conservatives may decide to join the game and seek activist judges with conservative views. Should this come to pass, those who have tempted the courts to political judging will have gained nothing for themselves, but will have destroyed a great and essential institution. There are only two sides. Either the Constitution and statutes are law, which means their principles are known and control the judges, or they are malleable texts that judges may rewrite to see that particular group's or political causes win. Unquote. Robert Bork. Quote, if I were a black liberal, I would be hailed, I guess, but I'm not. I mean, I think for myself, I want to make my own decisions, unquote. Clarence Thomas. At the close of our last podcast, we explored how, in lieu of massive legislative accomplishments, the left turned to the Supreme Court to drive its agenda, particularly in the case of abortion. There was a time when the choice of Supreme Court justices was without controversy. They were barely even noticed. Keep in mind these numbers. William O. Douglas, one of the leading liberals on the court, his nomination vote, 64 to 4. William Berger, Chief Justice during Roe v. Wade, 74 to 3. Harry Blackman, the man who wrote the opinion on Roe v. Wade, 94 to zero. William Brennan, one of the most liberal justices and a recess appointment, only one senator opposed, Joseph McCarthy. Lewis Powell, 89 to 1. Sandra Day O'Connor, 1981, 99 to 0. And even a conservative jurist nominated in 1986, Justice Antonin Scalia, 89 to 0. But it was during Scalia's choice that the first cracks began to show. The opening was created by Warren Burger's decision to retire as the Chief Justice. Reagan decided to move conservative William Rehnquist, one of the two individuals who had voted against Roe, as the new Chief Justice and nominate Scalia to replace him. And it is hard not to see that the vote is the reason for this interesting number. 65 to 33 in favor of Rehnquist, but in contrast, note how all of those others voted. Over 33 senators felt it necessary to vote against Rehnquist, who was already on the Supreme Court at that time. So let's look at some of the chief justices of the near past prior to Rehnquist. There was William Taft, former president in 1921, who was appointed with a 61-4 Senate for vote. There was Fred Vinson, who won the role by acclamation or voice vote, 
Harder to know the actual numbers, but nothing really close. Earl Warren in 1954 was another recess appointment, but again won the position by acclamation or voice vote. Harder to know the actual numbers, but again close. We do know the numbers of Warren Burger, though. In 1969, the man who succeeded Earl Warren, 74 to 3. That is why it is puzzling that the next Chief Justice of the Supreme Court would attract 33 votes against his appointment. And there were some later votes that were highly similar to the earlier ones, but would become the anomaly, the rare exceptions. One of those was moderate Anthony Kennedy's after a contentious Robert Bork nomination process, which we will look in detail. Kennedy won by 99 to 0. And in 1993, we had Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 96 to 3. But Ginsburg, in many ways, Ginsburg represented the last of the detente. The fundamental shift in Supreme Court politics began with Robert Bork. In 1987, President Ronald Reagan nominated Bork to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the U.S. Senate rejected his nomination after a highly publicized confirmation hearing. That particular date of nomination, July 1, 1987, was to replace the retiring Associate Justice Lewis F. Powell Jr. It was, as I have stated, a hotly contested United States Senate debate over Bork's nomination ensued almost immediately. Opposition was partly fueled by civil rights and women's rights groups. Concerned about Bork's seeming opposition to the authority claimed by the federal government to impose standards of voting fairness upon states. Also, his stated desire to roll back civil rights decisions of the Warren and Burger courts, or at least as they saw it. Bork was also criticized for being an, quote, advocate of disproportionate powers for the executive branch of government, almost executive supremacy, unquote. Even before the nomination of Bork, before Justice Powell's expected retirement that occurred on June 27, 1987, some Senate Democrats had asked liberal leaders to, f to form a solid phalanx of opposition if President Reagan nominated an ideological extremist to replace him, assuming it would tilt the court rightward. Democrats also warned Reagan that if there would be a Bork nomination, there would be a fight. Nevertheless, Reagan nominated Bork for Powell's seat. Following Bork's nomination, Senator Ted Kennedy took to the Senate floor with strong condemnation of him. In one of the most spurious speeches ever delivered from the Senate, and that is saying something, Kennedy declared, quote, Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back-alley abortions, Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police would break down citizens' doors in midnight raids. School children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists could be censored at the whim of the government. And the doors of the federal court would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of the individual rights that are at the heart of our democracy. The damage that President Reagan will do through this nomination, if it is not rejected by the Senate, could live on far beyond the end of his presidential term. 
President Reagan is still our president, but he should not be able to reach out from the muck of Iran gate, reach into the muck of Watergate, and impose his reactionary vision of the Constitution on the Supreme Court and the next generation of Americans. No justice would be better than this injustice. Unquote. Bork responded simply, quote, There was not a line in that speech that was accurate. Unquote. I could do a piece-by-piece dismantling of that entire speech. Again, one of the worst ever delivered from the Senate floor. But let's just even look at the zeitgeist of what he is talking about. Here you have Ted Kennedy, a senatorial leader, supposedly. And he is simply saying, and I love this line, protector of the individual rights that are at the heart of the democracy. In other words, of course, a senator could not be responsible for something like that. Within all of his rhetoric about back alley abortions or segregation or midnight raids, none of which, none of which can fundamentally be found in Robert Bork's rulings up until that point, there is within Kennedy's speech that concept that the Supreme Court, and in regards only the Supreme Court, could be the fundamental guarantor of individual rights. That is one of the reasons that Kennedy himself did not want to bork on there, not as a protector of individual rights, as he says, but those individual rights as a Ted Kennedy and all of his liberal ilk would have seen them. So let me repeat Bork's supposition that there was not a line in this speech that was accurate. In an obituary of Kennedy, the economist remarked that Bork may have well have been correct But as the economist then wryly notes, but it worked. Well then, part of the reason it worked is the Supreme Court nominations until Bork had not seen that kind of unhinged diatribes unleashed by the likes of a Kennedy, though they are now, sadly, commonplace today. So here you have Ted Kennedy, the lion-eye son of a wealthy man who is partially responsible for the death of a young woman in the Chappaquiddick incident, essentially lying to the American people about the decisions and characters of one of the best legal minds of his generation. And as with the death of Mary Jo Kopechny, getting away with it. The same Economist article noted, quote, had a young woman not drowned in his car, he might have been president. That, alas, is how many will remember Ted Kennedy, unquote. Yeah, and other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? Bork also contended in his book, The Tempting of America, that the brief prepared for then-Senator Joe Biden, yes, the same Joe Biden, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, so thoroughly misrepresented a plain record that it easily qualifies as a world-class in the category of scurrility. Opponents of Bork's nomination found the arguments against him justified, claiming that Bork's believed the Civil Rights Act was unconstitutional. Also, he was said to support poll taxes, literacy tests for voting, mandated school prayer, and sterilization as a requirement for a job while opposing free speech rights for non-political speech and privacy rights for gay conduct. Reality, however, was well, massively different. In 1988, an analysis published in the Western Political Quarterly of Amicus Curie Beliefs 
filed by U.S. Solicitors General during the Warren and Burger Courts found that during Bork's tenure in the position during the Nixon and Ford administrations from 1973 through 1977, this was the U.S. Solicitors General Office, Bork took liberal positions in the aggregate as often as Thurgood Marshall did during the Johnson administration, 1965 through 1967, and more often than Wade H. McCree did during the Carter administration, 77 through 1981. Uh, keep something in mind. Nixon and Ford were Republicans. Johnson and Carter were Democrats. And yet, during his solicitor generalships, Bork took liberal positions as much as his corresponding colleagues in those administrations. In part of this, because Bork filed briefs in favor of litigants in civil rights cases 75% of the time. But the record, the actual decisions, thoughts, and opinions of Bork were no match in those days for slick TV ads and basso profundo movie stars. Advertisements produced by the progressive People for the American Way, funded by uber-liberal TV producer Norman Lear, and narrated by no less than Gregory Peck, attacked Bork as an extremist. In a 60-second advertisement televised nationally at the cost of about $200,000, this is pretty big money in the 1980s, Peck charged that Bork has a strange idea of what justice is. He defended poll taxes and literacy tests, which kept many Americans from voting. He opposed the civil rights law that ended whites-only signs at lunch counters. Those three charges are three of the most blatant distortions of Bork's record. Take Bork's position on just literacy tests. In 1965, Congress prohibited states from requiring people to pass reading and writing tests before registering to vote. The high court in 1959 ruled that such tests did not automatically violate the Constitution, but in 1966, the court upheld Congress's power to ban this practice. Bork said in congressional testimony in 1982 that Congress's action exceeded its power, and the court decision upholding that action was very bad, indeed pernicious, constitutional law. Did that amount to defending Literacy tests, as the ad charge, Milan Vavur, People for the American Way's Director of Public Policy, said it did because Bork opposed the way Congress acted to end the tests. But she, even she, the Director of Public Policy for, the, for this organization, People for the American Way, conceded Bork never directly spoke out in favor of the tests. Rather, Bork's issue was bad law. On poll taxes, however, the charge against Bork has considerably more evidence behind it, or so his accusers would have us believe. Bork, in congressional testimony in 1973, clearly disagreed with the High Court's 1966 decision eliminating poll taxes. But the Virginia tax challenged in the case was a minimal poll tax, and Bork himself said, I doubt that it had much impact on the nation's welfare one way or the other. The suggestion in the People for the American Way ad that Bork's position constituted racism. 
the Virginia case simply had nothing to do with race, and yet this was another clear distortion. Kennedy's speech in the ad campaign successfully fueled widespread public skepticism of Bork's nomination. The rapid response and support to Kennedy's Robert Bork's America speech stunned the Reagan White House, and the accusations went unanswered for two and a half months. Because the attack was so unprecedented, support was not on hand. Remember how earlier I had talked about how the if Lewis Powell had retired, there was to be this phalanx of opposition to any potentially powerful GOP nominee, anybody who was of a strong conservative ideology. In other words, those groups, such as is the People for the American Way, but a whole bunch of other groups were already mobilized and on the march. Kennedy probably had his speech pre-written prior to the nomination itself. The Reagan administration, on the other hand, playing by these those old rules, those rules which I had illustrated before, in which Supreme Court nominees were passed through by these 89 to 4 or 61 to 3 kind of votes, was a thing of the past. The Reagan administration simply was not ready for this. Today, when a GOP nomination is announced, there is usually a concerted effort on the part of right-wing groups, ranging from the Heritage Foundation to many legal organizations to immediately counter and support the nominee. And it is there to counter the ferocious and sadly inevitable storm of unhinged protests that will greet any Republican nominee, no matter how qualified. But in 1987, Reagan's administration was still playing by the old rules. To pro-choice rights legal groups, Bork's originalist views and his belief that the Constitution did not contain general right to privacy, remember how we talked about that in the last podcast, right to privacy rules, basically invented out of thin air, basically citing the 14th Amendment in which right to privacy is never mentioned, were viewed as a clear signal that should Bork become a justice of the Supreme Court, he would vote to completely overrule the courts. You guessed it, 1973 decision Roe v. Wade. Accordingly, many groups mobilized to press for Bork's rejection, and the resulting 1987 Senate confirmation hearings became an intensely partisan battle. All of that stuff about rejection of blacks and poll taxes and literacy tests was a smokescreen. They were concerned that Bork, because he was a man of the law, would reject bad law. And in those days, there really wasn't anything quite as bad as Roe v. Wade. And here we come to the two fundamental reasons why the left basically lost its mind over Bork. The first, as noted above, was that Bork represented the first hard overturn in terms of Roe. As the previous conservative historian podcast pointed out, Roe was passed on bad law. Bork's entire career was predicated on an originalist view of the Constitution, or as the founders intended, and was a clear rejecter of the living Constitution. This Constitution in which you would take the temperature of the people, you'd be a judicial activist school, as was seen in both Plessy v. Ferguson and Roe. In other words, Bork hated bad law. Here's a second kind of thing, too, about this. 
The second was the Liberals by now had a measure after nearly a year. They had the measure of Antonin Scalia, and they were not at all pleased. The more intellectually and judicially that Scalia began to run rings around the liberal justices with his brilliant mind and originalist vision, the more the thought of two such powerhouses was daunting and could not be born. On October 23, 1987, the Senate denied Bork's confirmation, with 42 senators voting in favor and 58 voting against. His defeat in the Senate was the worst of any Supreme Court nominee since George Washington Woodward was defeated 20 to 29 in 1845 and the third worst ever on record. National Review columnist Kevin Williamson noted in 2016 that upon Antonin Scalia's death, quote, I would like to add an energetic amen to our editorial today on the death of Antonin Scalia and the necessity of preventing Barack Obama's replacing him with another left-wing activist. Jim Garrity is right to point out that Republicans need to make no argument other than the one Democrats, such as Chuck Schumer, were making at the end of the Bush years. They need do nothing more than Senator Barack Obama did in filibustering Samuel Alito. There are plenty of other examples. The er example, in other words, the first in Williamson speak, of course, is the case of Robert Bork. The Democrats' craven, despicable, lying campaign against Bork announced the arrival of Supreme Court confirmation hearings as bare-knuckle political brawls. There was no question that Bork was well-qualified for the position. He was one of the great legal minds of his time. Democrats simply did not like his views of the law and the Constitution." Unquote. Before Bork, the essential criteria of a Supreme Court justice were legal training, legal experience, and making certain that they had not killed a man or were secretly torturing puppies. After Bork, it was all about ideology. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., Louis Brandeis, Felix Frankfurter, William O. Douglas, William Brennan, they were all ideologues, though of differing beliefs, and all got on the court. It was different now with Bork. Wall Street Journal writer Mark Pulliam noted in 2018, when Justice Anthony Kennedy announced his retirement in June, liberal interest groups were apoplectic. Many Senate Democrats, including Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, vowed to oppose any nominee and kept their promise when President Trump nominated Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Liberal groups rail against him for transparently political reasons. They don't like the way they think he will vote as if he were a legislator. Despite Bork's unsurpassed credentials, liberals opposed him solely because of his conservative judicial philosophy. Unfortunately, they succeeded and in the process coined a new verb to Bork. The confirmation process for Supreme Court nominees has been corrupted ever since. Bork had earned this reputation by swimming against the ideological current as a scholar during the 1960s and 1970s, the heyday of the living constitution, when most of the legal academy was busy justifying judicial activism. Bork believed that judges should enforce the law, including the Constitution as written. This approach has variously been referred to as strict construction, original intent, interpretivism, judicial restraint, textualism, and originalism. 
Bork wasn't the only conservative in legal academia, but he was the most influential advocate for originalism. I would say the most. If you were to say who is number two, I would say that was Justice Antonin Scalia. And again, think about the thought of all those liberals shivering in corners with the two of them, Scalia and Bork, sitting on the same court. If Scalia could run circles around those liberals, can you imagine if there were two of them? Well, that's exactly what Ted Kennedy and the liberals did imagine, and they didn't like it at all, and they stopped it. Bork assumed no one would believe Kennedy's hysterical charges. But he was naive. Kennedy's extreme rhetoric renazated with the left's grassroots, prompting Judiciary Committee Joe Biden, yes, it's Biden again, who had previously said of Reagan-nominated Bork, I'd have to vote for him. Yeah, that's what that's what Biden said back then. He said that if Reagan nominated Bork, he would vote for him. But, well, I know this is going to come a shocker to those who know Joe Biden of 2022, but good old Biden, as he had done for the last 50 years, stuck his finger in the air, tested the winds, and then changed his mind and announced his opposition to Bork. The televised confirmation hearings in September 1987 lasted an unprecedented 12 days. Bork was grilled and testified in detail about his views for five full days. And the Judiciary Committee rejection of Bork by a 9-5 vote spelled political doom. Even though he was defeated by those numbers we had mentioned earlier, keep in mind he didn't even get out of committee. The Borking of Robert Bork taught special interest groups that they could demonize judicial nominees based solely on their worldview. Remember that criteria that I talked about before? Do they have a legal mind? Do they have legal experience? Had they maybe, you know, killed a few people and secretly not talked about it? Those were the criteria before, not anymore. Again, now it's about ideology. And the left had learned all the wrong lessons by the defeat of Bork. Worse, character assassination proved an effective tactic nearly sinking Justice Clearance's Thomas's appointment four years after Bork's. A little bit of a different take is in a 2018 piece in Politico by Jeff Greenfield. Here, the author attempts to put the permanently changed rules of SCOTUS nominations not at the feet of the Bork hearing, but at the next set of hearings in 1990, this time with the nominees of George H.W. Bush. The piece is entitled, the justice who built the Trump court. Almost 30 years ago, a stealth nominee, not Robert Bork, changed everything about the politics of confirmation fights. When David Souter was nominated in 1990 to replace the retiring liberal William Brennan, conservatives had built up a lengthening set of grievances about the Supreme Court nominees of their party's presidents. From Eisenhower on, Republican presidents had picked a remarkable number of justices who turned out to be either moderate or, just as frequently, squarely in the liberal camp. Earl Warren, William Brennan, Henry Blackman, and John Paul Stevens were among the most consistent, ardent member of the court's left. Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy were swing votes, and even those with strong conservative credentials were less than sure votes. Warren Burger, nominated by Richard Nixon, voted with the seven-member majority to make abortion a constitutionally protected right. Lewis Powell and Potter Stewart concurred. William Rehnquist, chosen as a strong law and order justice by Ronald Reagan, would later pronounce the Miranda warning, 
a permanent feature of the criminal justice system. David Souter's chief asset, in fact, was that, in sharp contrast to Bork, whose writings and opinions were bountiful and provocative, Souter had no paper trail whatsoever. So when White House Chief of Staff and former New Hampshire Governor John Sununu proclaimed that Souter would be a home run for conservatives, many on the right were convinced. A St. Louis Post-Dispatch columnist celebrated that Souter would provide the decisive fifth vote for a broad counter-revolution in constitutional law overturning decisions on abortion, affirmative action, and criminal procedure. That was enough to trigger some on the left into instant opposition. Maliard, president of the Nor- Maliard, president of the National Organization for Women, argued that Souter was almost Neanderthal and that confirming him would end freedom for women in this country. What is interesting about Yard's comments is, is that just three years after Bork's defeat, the left had learned their playbook all too well, despite, again, that incredible lack of any kind of opinions or items with which to judge Souter, the left was already branding any GOP nominee as, and I love this stuff, Neanderthals or end freedom for women in this country. Obviously, that doesn't sound hysterical or unhinged, does it? And in some regards, this fierce opposition of the left implied to many conservatives that maybe Souter was in fact their man. So there was no reason to doubt his conservative bona fides, except there was. While Souter voted along generally conservative lines in the first year on the bench, he soon began to drift left. By 1992, he was part of the majority in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, reaffirming the core holding of Roe v. Wade. On cases ranging from voluntary school prayer to affirmative action, Souter lined up with his liberal colleague. By 1995, the conservative weekly standard had labeled him the stealth justice and called him one of the staunchest liberals on the court, a more reliable champion of liberal causes than Clinton appointees Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer. In the Eisenhower-Nixon four days, there were plenty of moderate and even liberal Republicans, but by 1990, the party was decidedly more conservative, and this latest heretic was one too many. His ascension and his post-side journey created a rallying cry that governed the next three decades of Republican nominations. No more suitors. So is Greenfield right? Is this desire for truly conservative justices a response to the decidedly non-conservative David Souter? I would disagree with his contention. The reason that H.W. Bush purposely went with a moderate, paperless David Souter was simply because he didn't want a Bork fight, especially because this was his first nomination. The concept then with an H.W. Bush was to avoid that kind of contention, and that was his lesson from the Bork fight, not the Souter nomination. When a later GOP president, George W. Bush, found himself with two vacancies in 2005 after Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's retirement and Chief Justice Rehnquist's death, he slotted John Roberts for the chief's job. He then picked White House counsel and close friend Harriet Myers to succeed O'Connor. It made political sense. For one thing, she'd be the only woman nominated by a Republican president on the court at that time. But objections began to rise almost immediately. 
Some were about her qualifications, her lack of experience on any bench, and her shaky answers on constitutional issues in her meetings with senators. But a major part of the opposition came from conservative groups that doubted she would be, in Bush's own words, a good conservative judge. She had even indicated to Senator Arlen Specter her belief in an unenumerated right of privacy. And again, and again, keep in mind the central part of privacy in the Roe v. Wade decision, as we discussed in the previous podcast. In the face of this opposition, the president withdrew Meyer's nomination and instead chose Court of Appeals Judge Samuel Alito instead. In his job application as Deputy Assistant General in 1985, Alito was a staunch conservative who named National Review and Barry Goldwater's 1964 presidential campaign as major influences. His court decisions on almost every issue reflected a consistent, conservative philosophy. And with increasingly influential groups like the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society as vetters and guardians of the faith, there would be no chance for another suitor to slip through. The blowback from suitor made the Supreme Court a key, if not the key, issue for conservatives when judging candidates for high office. Despite the less fears, Souter was still confirmed by 90 to 9. It was not to be for the next nominee, also nominated by Republican George H.W. Bush. Now, we have explored some of the reasons why the left began to view the court differently from its previous 170-year-old history. But in response, so has the right, as we had seen with the Alito selection. Altogether, three things changed the tenor of GOP responses to SCOTUS. The first was Bork, as we have already explored. But the second could be embodied in the person of David Souter. But certainly the third was the nomination process of Justice Clarence Thomas. On July 1st, 1991, President George H.W. Bush nominated Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court of the United States to replace Thurgood Marshall, who had announced his retirement. At the time of his nomination, Thomas was a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. President Bush had appointed him to that position in March of 1990. The nomination proceedings were contentious from the start, especially regarding abortion. Many women's groups and civil rights groups opposed Thomas based on his conservative political views, just as they had just previously opposed Bush Supreme Court nominee from the previous year, David Souter. But again, they were ameliorated with Souter, as was noted in that 90-9 confirmation. It was not to be with Thomas. Towards the end of the confirmation process, sexual harassment allegations against Thomas by Anita Hill, a law professor who had previously worked under Thomas at the United States Department of Education and then followed him to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, were leaked to the media from a confidential FBI report. The allegations led to further investigations in a media frenzy about sexual harassment. As a result, televised hearings were reopened and held by the Senate Judiciary Committee before the nomination was moved to the full Democratic-controlled Senate for a vote. On October 15, 1991, Thomas was confirmed to the United States Supreme Court by a very narrow Senate majority of 52 to 48. 
despite no other allegations against him, and over 30 years since, no other issues, Thomas is still vilified today as much for his staunch conservatives' rulings as for the nomination process. Writing about this in The Federalist, columnist Jordan Boyd writes that Thomas's life is a beautiful example of the American dream and how he worked his way up with integrity and character from the streets of segregated Savannah, Georgia to the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. But unfortunately, as a result, he is repeatedly defamed by Democrats and their media cronies. Thomas is no stranger to attacks from the corporate media and the left. Despite his confirmation, he was assailed with false reports of sexual assault that were peddled to stop him from assuming the bench. Recently, the media has called for Thomas's impeachment due to these decade-old allegations, which were riddled with falsehoods and inconsistencies. In 2015, New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd said Thomas was a creepy guy who acted pervy to dig up those past allegations despite countless defenses of his character from his women colleagues. Keep in mind that since Anita Hill's accusations, and also note that Hill followed him from one departmental role working for him in the Department of Education to another one at the EOC, that there has not been any of these repeated allegations in 30 years. Then, just last year, Amazon, yes, mighty Amazon, decided not to sell a documentary on Justice Clarence Thomas for no apparent reason other than a political one. And more recently, the New Yorker tried to drudge up a controversy which was a dud over Thomas based on his wife's political activities. Does Maureen Dowd actually know the justice? Doubtful, but uber-liberal justice Sonia Sotomayor does. And though there would be no political benefit for her saying so, her opinion of Thomas is a little different from the falsities perpetuated by the leftist media. Quote, I have probably disagreed with him more than any other justice, unquote, Sotomayor said of the conservative justice. But she said the two maintain a friendship, partly because he is a, quote, man who cares deeply about the court as an institution and about the people who work there. She added that the two share a common understanding about people and kindness, unquote. Boyd adds, despite the left's attempts to tear him down, Thomas remains a resilient fighter for Americans and the Constitution. He cares about protecting unborn babies, freedom of speech, and preserving the nation's essence. The left constantly assails Thomas, but for what? The crime of consistently ruling was in line with the philosophy and vision of the founding fathers who wanted liberty and justice for all. Boyd notes a disturbing trend among liberals in their approach to black conservatives. Quote, in an article published on Wednesday, the Washington Post, which has a history of being racist towards black conservatives, claimed that Thomas is a black justice whose rulings often resemble the thinking of white conservatives, unquote. What that even means is left to the fevered minds of the Post writers and their readers. But this same kind of characterization also seems to apply to other black conservatives, such as South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, infamously labeled Uncle Tim as a comparison to the black appeaser Uncle Tom from Harriet Beecher Stowe's 19th century work. 
Anton and Scalia also produced a 30-year record of unparalleled commitment to originalist, anti-judicial activist jurisprudence, but he never came under Thomas's vitriolic level leveled against the justice from leftist media. It is as if the left claims African-Americans as their own, and any deviation from the ideology of that race needs to be punished. Earlier, I had noted Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the last to have a near-universal support for her nomination, but in the shadow of Bork, she is, what she established has become known as the Ginsburg Rule. Edwin Meese, former Attorney General of the United States, writing in Heritage.org notes, Ginsburg, while a smart lawyer, had been a radical activist. Her record as an ACLU litigator placed her far outside the mainstream of American law. For example, she had argued for legalizing prostitution against separate prisons for men and women and speculated that there could be a constitutional right to polygamy. Some Republican senators wanted to know whether she still held such extreme views. Yet, on question after question, though, she refused to answer. Joe Biden, yes, still that same Joe Biden, still in charge of the Judiciary Committee, which is in 2022 seems like a bad joke, stipulated that she had no obligation to answer questions about her personal views or on issues that might come before the court. Despite her silence, the Senate confirmed Ginsburg 93-3. to I love that. That is the new standard upon which the nomination process looks. Nobody can comment on an issue that might come before the Supreme Court. It is the Supreme Court. Every issue might come before the Supreme Court. And that means this is that a justice in the nomination process need not comment on anything anymore. Michael Kinsley, writing in The Atlantic on the eve of Elena Kagan's nomination, noted, The flaw in this argument was is that Bork's controversial opinions were the reason Reagan picked him in the first place. President Obama, however, is not in the mood to pick a new fight right now. That is one reason he is drawn to Solicitor General Elena Kagan to fill the seat being vacated by John Paul Stevens. Kagan has a very small paper trail. She was never a judge. As a law professor at Harvard, she specialized in unfashionable topics that did not generate a lot of heat. Some liberals are starting to worry that she may be more conservative than the man she would replace. Best of luck to Elena Kagan, but it is absurd to choose a Supreme Court justice on the basis of who we know the least about. This absurdity arises only because of another absurdity. The unwritten rule that Supreme Court nominees need not, indeed should not, answer questions about their judicial philosophy, except in the broadest and most bromidic terms, and certainly should not even hint at how they might rule in specific cases. Well, in this case, Kinley need not worry. Kagan has been a very reliable liberal vote. I always find that kind of interesting, and it's kind of a frustration of conservatives, that when you had Souter, who had no, per, uh, who had no paper trail, he tended to vote liberal. Kagan had no paper trail, and guess what? She tended to vote liberal. That is one of the reasons why that despite not having wanting too much of a paper trail, we need to have something so that we know that an Alito, that a Kavanaugh, that a Gorsuch will be a reliable conservative vote to bring balance back to the Supreme Court. Today, 
there are three critical criteria for selection. First, no suitors of either party. Parties demand absolutism to party ideology, but well hidden or forgotten, of course. A key contributor to the close votes now so commonplace and so rare prior to Bork. Yet that no suitor, that sort of well hidden or forgotten, comes to almost seem farcical when, during the nomination process of Kentanchi Brown Jackson, two questions were put to the now sitting justice. The first one was, asked her to define a woman, at which point she said she was not a biologist, which of course is crazy and craven, because a Supreme Court justice will see everything. The second question, when does life begin? It's that fundamental question of an abortion. Because if the answer, as I have stated several times during the course of these last few podcasts, if the answer that life can only begin after birth, if it is stated at any time prior to birth, well then what exactly is the an abortion procedure then at that moment? Whatever it is, Brown Jackson would not answer. So that is, is the first critical piece of it. Don't answer everything and don't, unlike Bork, haul in a 20-year ideological trail that can be picked apart. The second key criteria is youth. If they could get away with it, the parties would nominate 30-somethings. But even as is that is still egregious, though I'm sure they thought of it, the thought of a 60-year-old or even a 70-year-old something is anathema to the selection because a justice is now expected to serve at least 30 years. An addendum to this is physical fitness. No grossly overweight Tafts who served as SCOTUS Chief Justice for what would now be considered a very short term of nine years. The last two justices to be seated on the court, Amy Coney Barrett and Kentaji Brown Jackson, both look like they could trade their robes for jogging shoes and rip off a 10K without breaking a sweat. And the third piece, again thanks to Bork, with an assist from Ginsburg, is a very light assortment of opinions, as I have stated before. One would think it should be the opposite, a robust selection of rulings showing depth and experience. One would be wrong, however. It was the very breath of Bork's work and his fearlessness in wading into controversial decisions that upended him. As noted above, in 2005, George W. Bush opted for John Roberts and Samuel Alito with two picks for the Supreme Court. In the past, prior to Bork, both eminently qualified nominees would have coasted. But here are the actual numbers. John Roberts, 78 to 22. This number for a clearly qualified Chief Justice, just 12 years removed from radical RBG's 96 to 3 vote. It should be stunning, but it gets worse. Samuel Alito, without the Bork paper trail, nor the smears thrown at Clarence Thomas, and again, eminently qualified, was a mere 58 to 42. Since the entire GOP was not yet onto the new hyper-partisanship, Obama nominees were not such as the near things as the GOP ones. Sonia Sotomayor, in 2009, was 68 to 31. Elena Kagan, 2010, was 63 to 37. But note that 37. Again, we're just talking about roughly 17 years after Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and now the Republicans are starting to get on board with those 37 Republican votes against Kagan. Then, in 2013, 
Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid and Senate Democrats made a historic change to the Senate rules in order to bypass what they called Republican obstruction, often referred to in Beltway slang as the nuclear option. The rule change puts the kibosh in repeated attempts by Republicans to present Obama from staffing his administration or appointing judges to the federal bench. Supreme Court nominees can still be filibustered, and that's what Reed and his senatorial cronies did away with. They removed the concept of filibustering for lower court judges. Now, they didn't yet remove it for the upper court, but we shall see. Now, prior to Reed having done away with the filibuster, in one case, during the George W. Bush administration, it was Reed who led the obstruction of federal judges during those years and one specifically. Reed wanted to prevent the appointment of Michaela Estrada to the appellate court. Chess player Reed surmised that Estrada was being groomed for bigger things and did not want a Republican to appoint the first Hispanic to the bench. That would later be Obama's purview with Sonia Sotomayor. But again, Reed, who vigorously opposed getting rid of the filibuster when he was not in charge of the Senate, then got rid of it when he was. This filibuster discussion has never been one of any kind of principle. It has always been one of political power. Now, the GOP may be late to the game, but in Mitch McConnell's person, at least, they learned the new rules. First, despite a firestorm of protest, Mitch McConnell in 2016, with a Senate majority, refused to fill a vacant seat on the court created by the death of Antonin Scalia. Obama tried to dodge this by appointing a moderate Merrick Garland. Now, keep in mind I am writing this in August of 2022, and as it has turned out, Garland has turned out to be about as moderate as Ted Kennedy or Elizabeth Warren. But the GOP would get the message with the Trump picks. Neil Gorsuch, 2017, another highly qualified justice, 54 to 45. Amy Coney Barrett in 2020. And part of this, the, the concept of protest was the protest of Trump selecting a nominee in an election year. Now, Mitch McConnell had held up Merrick Garland, saying that he wasn't going to appoint somebody in an election year. And lo and behold, in 2020, he did it. Again, all of this politicking has nothing to do with principle. It has to do with naked political power. And he had, Mitch McConnell had learned his lesson from the likes of Reed and Ted Kennedy. They do not call McConnell the murder turtle for nothing. Barrett squeaked in at 52 to 48, again, despite being eminently qualified. And then there is Brett Kavanaugh. Just as Clarence Thomas was accused of sexual misconduct, so it was with Brett Kavanaugh with a slight difference. Whereas Thomas was accused solely by a worker with recent work history, Kavanaugh was charged with a crime that was 30 years old. Then two more accusations came at Kavanaugh and both women were later to be found to be either lying or could not recall any details about the alleged incidents. Writer Lisa Booth notes, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the Democrats had tried to deny Justice Kavanaugh due process and the presumption of innocence. The far less willingness to seize on completely 
uncorroborated and unsubstantiated allegations during last year's confirmation process was a dark and embarrassing chapter for the Senate, he tweeted. But he added, I look forward to many years of service to come from Justice Kavanaugh. And as far as those accusations, they came from a respected professor, Christine Blasey Ford, except for two fundamental problems with her accusations against Kavanaugh of sexual assault. Number one, she couldn't name the time. Number two, she couldn't name the place. Whether Blase Ford actually believed in what she believed or was outright lying, the simple truth of it is, is that her entire case was built on no evidence whatsoever. And like Thomas, Kavanaugh has no other single credible accuser. I have noted a major part of the reason that the left now looks to the Supreme Court to do all of its legislative work, and that is why they are so fiercely protective of that, including the ability to impugn character, is, is that they no longer have the massive legislative power of the teens in the 1930s and in the mid-1960s. If you're going to do big things today, if you're going to change existing law or create new law out of whole cloth, the Supreme Court began to be the place to do it. That is, is the major driving force. But there is also something else at work. Two of the greatest decisions in the history of the Republic over the past 120 years, what is the size and scope of government and what is our role in the world, have been largely well agreed upon. Again, one hears about divisiveness and polarization, but in terms of these two massive issues, the first answer is pretty big, and the second is America first. Both right and left are in agreement on those two things. That leaves, well, plenty of other issues to kick around, but in contrast, the federal government used to contend over slavery, price controls, or whether to be a gold or silver standard, and today we debate pronouns, bathroom access, and the definition of a recession. That is not to say there are still not some very major issues, immigration, crime, inflation. But this also leads us to the third factor, a supine Congress enabled and abetted by the primary system. Today, every member of Congress lives not in terror of being a lousy legislator or disappointing the bulk of constituents within their district. No, instead they live in terror of a small rump of especially active people within their district or state. And if you are a Republican, you cannot be too moderate lest you get primaried from the activists on that flank. And if you are a moderate liberal, you will be flanked to the left by some wild-eyed progressive. That is how AOC got her Brooklyn seat and why Chuck Schumer, Democratic senior majority lead, Senate leader, and once a reasonably rational human being, sounds increasingly like Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders more than his own predecessor, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, one of the most incisive political thinkers of the late 20th century. There is a simple answer to not getting primaried. Do not have a voting record. Progressives in the 1960s lamented that they did not leave the FDR LBJ supermajorities to get their agenda through, so they turned to the Supreme Court. Today's progressives and their GOP counterparts cannot even get the legislators they have to vote. So it all goes to SCOTUS. 
All of this means is that issues customarily overseen by the legislature, everything from the writing of health care laws to political finance and unions dues to immigration issues, everything from the scope of government to whether abortion is legal, gets dumped onto the Supreme Court of the United States. One of the reasons that issues like Dred Scott and Plessy stand out in our era is the racial aspect. But another is they represent the Supreme Court entering and enacting political legislation punted by Congress. What was generational in the 19th century is annualized in the 21st. There is a movement on the left to denigrate the founders and by extension, the Constitution itself. The reality is that the founders were a uniquely brilliant group, and the system of government they established has not only stood the test of time for nearly a quarter of a millennium, but has created the wealthiest nation to ever have existed. The system created by the founders imagined that SCOTUS's core role, SCOTUS's mission, was to act as a check, an interpreter, and a break on the legislator's power to make detrimental changes in governance. It was never envisioned that the unelected justices would be the governance and would enact the laws. Suppose you are one of those on the right and now on the left who feel that the Supreme Court of the United States wields, well, maybe a little too much power. Uh, the left has only come to that when there were six conservative justices, by the way. When I say recent, I, I mean like really within the last like four or five months. It is time to reconsider not only its role, the Supreme Court, but that of the legislative and executive branches as well. But let's be clear on this. This is not chicken and egg. The left and the Democratic Party favor ever larger government, ever greater intrusion and control of the American people's lives. It is the left wherein emanated judicial activism. It is the left who made up laws like the right to privacy in terms of abortion, nowhere mentioned in the Constitution to justify their social policies. It is the left who first impugned the professional nature of a justice's decisions as with Bork. It is the left who smears now the personal character of GOP nominees as seen with Thomas and Kavanaugh. It is the left who began to vote against judges not through quality, but by ideology. And it was the left that blew up the filibuster rule on judges. With the recent Dobbs v. Mississippi, and more importantly, West Virginia v. EPA, that is beginning to bring balance, nay, sanity, back to the separation of powers and the role, the mission of the Supreme Court. But just as Sotomayor, who had such nice things to say about Thomas, did not say very nice things about Dobbs. Quote, the newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. The justice said getting personal about the newest members of the court, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its readings are just political acts? I do not see how it is possible, unquote. There you have sitting Justice Sonia Sotomayor questioning the very core of the institution of the Supreme Court because they seated Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. 
because the seated people with whom she does not agree with. It took Marbury v. Madison in 1803 to lend legitimacy as a co-equal third branch of the government. But it took decades of reinforcement and endured despite grievous errors like Dred Scott. More recently, it took about 60 years, ranging from the Griswold decision of 1965 to the 2022 unhinged vitriol exhibited by Sotomayor to get us to this place of questioning the court's very legitimacy. It is now commonplace on the left to corrupt once powerful and important institutions that provided guardrails around our society. The singular issue is mission creep. As the left takes an existing mission, expands it, changes it, and warps it to fit its own views. This goes all the way back to Woodrow Wilson trying to do this to the Constitution itself. And in recent decades, we have seen this with SCOTUS. On the right, the call is to abolish many of these institutions and place them with a kind of hollow populism. I have a better idea, and this is what the six conservative justices are doing today. Reestablish the mission, the scope, the role, and the very reason for being of that institution. In the case of the Supreme Court of the United States, it is simply to interpret laws passed by the elected bodies, to use the crude analogy to call balls and strikes, but not take the mound or sit in the batter's box. How long will it take to get back to balance, get back to the mission, get back to sanity? Hard to say, but the work must continue forward and the striving for a constitutional government of and for the people must never end. Thank you for listening to this latest edition of the Conservative Historian Podcast. Please listen to all of them. As always, thanks for listening. This is Bell Office.